0: I'm your host, Adam P. Kennedy. Welcome to America's Place in the World, featuring retired four-star United States Marine Corps General and former U.S. Special Envoy to Israel and the Palestinian Authority, Tony Zinni. We're looking at the world and America's place in it. In this episode, we discuss our own personal experiences with racism. The president, protesting, George Floyd, General Mattis, institutional racism and racial justice. It's coming up right now. Tell me your reaction to George Floyd.
1: Well, I was horrified. I mean, the image was unbelievable. Hey. And what even makes it worse is how many times do we have to see this? I mean, you know, and that this goes on like this that we haven't figured out. And I think it exposes not only the short-term problems like in policing uh, but it brings out then uh, the whole issue of racism and inequality and all those other issues that we, you know, that exist there. And it just takes things like this that uh, like to spark and draw our attention. But what frustrates me is what's going to come out of this? You know, I I think it's important that we hear sports stars and, and movie stars and government leaders all uh, condemn it and talk about the need for change, but, you know, where's the action? I mean, uh, you know, is this just going to fade away and, and, you know, we're going to just see this repeated until the next incident occurs? You know, you can look at this it, almost the way we look at things in the military, the strategic, the operational and the tactical level. You know, at the tactical level, all right, you're going to tell police don't use chokeholds. You're going to, you know, you're going to uh, fix things that uh, are, are more immediate but are are only band-aids. I mean in my mind we need to look hard at our at the, our justice system and the equality and our law enforcement. We need to look hard at economic uh, opportunity and equality, uh, job equality, employment equality. We need to look hard at the education and skills training we provide in our inner cities and where our minorities are located. Uh, you know, if I were the president I would form commissions to look at each of these areas in cooperation with governors and mayors and community leaders, you know, both from minority communities and the community in general. And I would say, this is your timeline. First, define the problem. Tell me why we have this problem and define it as to what it is. Then come back with the recommendations on how to fix it and what it's going to take to fix it, what the costs are. And then I think you go to you know, those that control the budgets and the money and the ability to provide the, the wherewithal to get these things done, meaning that Congresses and the state assemblies and those sorts of things, and say, how do we cooperatively work from the federal to the state to the local level in creating this? We've got to fix our schools. We've got to create skills training and an opportunity for uh, our minorities. We have to look at this, the justice system and fix where the laws are not applied equally. We need to look at our policing and making sure the training and the, and, and the education and the composition of our police forces is such that it represents the community and is done in the right way. You know, we gotta look at economic development. Uh, I, I wanna see schools in the inner city be the same as in the suburbs and the same quality of teaching, the same facilities, you know, the same emphasis on education. I mean, it's going to get back to this. We're going to hear a bunch of nice speeches again. We're going to hear people say things like, well, we have to have a conversation about racism. Conversation is over. It's got to be action. And and this is what frustrates me. Uh, You know, show me what's going to come out of this. You know, The one thing about uh, Dr. King's efforts in movement, he saw the prize. The immediate prize was legislation. It was voting rights, it was civil rights legislation, and and he was able to work with uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson and get that legislation done. But, you know, we need more legislation, we need more programs, we need more investment, and then at the same time, we need to figure out what's the basis of this racism that still exists. You know, it, it may not exist as bad as it did in the 50s or the 40s or the 30s or whatever, but it's still there. And we've got to figure a way to fix it. You know, taking a knee and, you know, raising a fist and yelling about it and, uh, you know, it's not going to fix it. We've got to find out what it's going to take in the way of investment and building the mechanisms to ensure there's equality and having the mechanisms in place to be sure that where we see racism raise its ugly head, that we're able to deal with it very effectively.
0: Yeah, well, no, it's interesting. I mean, I've been a I've been a victim of um, police brutality three times, and um, you know, had a gun pointed to my head, almost beaten to death outside of my father's house, um, and so it's it's you know, I remember those experiences, obviously, and you know, the last one happened like thirty years ago. And we actually wrote, my mother and I actually wrote a play called Sleep Deprivation Chamber, which is about our experience as a family, because I was charged with um, assaulting the police officer uh, and arrested. Um, but we went through a criminal trial. We won that The civil trial. We won that. And we put this play together and uh, it was done in New York and it won uh, Best New American Play at that time. And but I, what I remember so vividly about it. Was it so many young black men, black men came up to me and said, you know, this has happened to me. This has happened to me. This has happened to me. And, you know, I remember then saying to myself, maybe this is going to get better. And I think it's gotten worse. I think I I, I do believe it's you talked about a variety of things. To me, it is institutional racism. And the fact that that officer kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes to me, there's nothing, it's like, I hate to use the word, let's say, nigger, but at least to me, nigger means that you're valuing me a little bit as a human because you're trying to insult me. But this is no longer about being a nigger. This is about being absolutely nothing as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's like you're a cow, you're a pig, you're a chattel. And that's going back to slavery days. So that, that really is upsetting to me that that sort of calm demeanor that he had and the other officers, uh, they don't they didn't care. And so that's it's it's very, very depressing. It's very, very depressing.
1: And I think what's important is, look, not just to look at the nine minutes that the one officer did, but then to go back and look what the other three didn't do. Sure. Then to go back and say this officer had 17 complaints and he's still on the police force. I mean, as you peel this onion back, it's not like, well, a, a single rogue policeman at the moment, you know, lost his his head. Uh, as you work back on this, what the hell kind of police force keeps somebody around with seventeen complaints? What the hell kind of police force doesn't, you know, doesn't have a code where three out of four will say to the one that's uh, abusing his authority, "Stop it, you know, get off." Uh, you know, so there's something to go to your point. There's something institutional that's happening when things like this happen, and you need to fix it. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, part. I had a discussion with a number of police chiefs about uh, minority membership in police forces. And these police chiefs were, were trying to recruit more minority uh, policemen and policewomen. And they were saying, well, it's very difficult because the black community didn't see a future for themselves by and larger. It, it was alien to them to become a policeman. You know, it was not something that was well accepted within the community. And then when they did find people that came in and did extremely well, uh, they were grabbed by the state and federal law enforcement agencies and other agencies because, you know, they've gone through the academy, they've proven themselves, and they become a high commodity, and they get pulled out to where they're needed, you know, on the street doing their business. So you have even a bigger issue like that And how do we encourage police forces to bring in minority membership develop them compensate them you know for the work that they do uh and provide the right kind of training and support and then police forces that need to work within the community i mean it, it, i grew up in an area where the police walked the beat you knew the policeman on the beat uh, you know and now they everything's patrolled in cars and you know it, there isn't that interaction there isn't that sense of looking at a policeman and saying, oh, thank God the policeman's there. Uh, and, and so there's a whole relationship uh, kind of connection that has to be built, and not an adversarial relationship like you're pointing out. So uh, that's what I said about, you know, we, we can't just pay lip service to all this. There has to be institutional change and in action and investment in developing it.
0: And do you think the, uh, the Minnesota Police Department acted quickly in this regard?
1: Well, something's wrong. I mean, you know, look, I, I would hope the police chief and the mayor understand that something's wrong yeah. with a policeman with 17 complaints still out there not changing his way of doing business. Something's wrong when he he puts a knee on someone's neck and the other three do nothing about it. This is not an individual act. I mean, if, when you look at it, that's in what occurs. Yeah, you know, and and the other thing about... Uh, you know, what would happen if we didn't have cell phones today? Yeah. I mean, how much of this would still go, you know, untreated in some way or un, undealt with in a in a just way or manner?
0: I'm not sure who had said this this recently that, uh, you know, racism hasn't gone away, we just have cameras now. Yeah.
1: You know, so. uh, you know I, I, think, I think we've gotten better, but not as good as we should have gotten or should be at this point in our history and in our, in our lives. Uh, I think uh, there was some encouragement in looking out the demonstrators and seeing the, the number of uh, white faces out there and mm-hmm. the, the young people out there uh, amongst the demonstrators. So you're seeing a greater awareness and support in the uh, in the majority communities, you know. And so there, there are signs, but it's not enough yet. Yeah.
0: So tell me your thoughts about the protesters and then the sort of subsequent de-escalation into uh, – escalation, rather, into into the whole looting?
1: Well, I mean, the, you know, one of the – obviously, protests are a form of constitutional right to assemble, but they draw people that, you know, are are there to commit violence. Now, some of it may be organized – some of it may be intentional. Some of it may not have anything to do with the cause of the protest. Some of it may even be provoked by others that want the protesters to look bad. Some of it may just be thuggery. You know, uh, it, unfortunately, it creates an opportunity for the wrong kind of elements to detract from the, uh, the message and the cause. And it's, it's the nature of large-scale demonstrations. It's, you know, it happens. It's, it shouldn't uh it, it's it's horrible, it's unacceptable uh innocent people pay a price for this shop owners, employees in those shops who may be minority people too sure I mean we all know the downsides of that it does spark violence. We've had some killings, some police killings that were trying to protect shops and all there was a police chief somewhere that or a former police chief that was killed uh you know so yeah it's not uh The protests need to be done in a way where uh, they can make themselves uh, immune from that violence so their message doesn't get diluted in any way. I don't know how to do that. I mean, I I think back to the 60s, and I think about the uh, civil rights marches, you know. I think about Selma and the other places where Dr. King and other civil rights leaders led marches that, you know, completely... uh, or, or just about complete, were able to remove themselves from other elements. It was, you know, their message was concentrated in who was there. I, I mean, I, I I, would not tell a protester when or how they should uh, assemble, uh, if it's done in a peaceful way, but they should be conscious of what they're going to attract. and Unfortunately, it attracts an element that detracts from uh, the message. And then the problem becomes for... Those that need to uh, ensure that violence doesn't escalate and how do they separate the protesters doing their thing legitimately and constitutionally from those that are committing violence and looting and, you know, other acts, uh, criminal acts. I mean, then it becomes a matter of where police reaction, uh, law enforcement reaction, ends up affecting uh, those that were out there to peacefully demonstrate.
0: Mm Mm-hmm and where these demonstrations, protests have happened and some that have gotten out of hand, do you think, for the most part, that the governors have used the National Guard well?
1: Uh, well, again, I think you can't, you can't paint the brush across everybody. You know, there, I think there are some places where the where the police have handled it well, some places where there may have been uh, overreaction, uh, some places where there have been underreaction. You know, uh, so I do think it's a mixed bag. Uh, I think uh, local and state law enforcement and and even federal, uh, I think that traditionally we've tried to manage this at the lowest level possible before you escalate to the next level. But unfortunately, what that means, something bad has to have happened for you to go to the next level. I mean, the criticism of the president is he's jumping the gun uh, to federal troops. Uh, without any governors asking for it or, or feeling that they haven't managed it within their own capabilities. And, and that's a mistake. Uh, but, uh, you know, governors and mayors have to make the right call. You don't want to come out too heavy-handed and overreact because that's going to get a counter-reaction. But, again, you don't want to find yourself that, you know, you you tried to handle it uh, uh, with just local police and suddenly you got out of control and you have fires raging and stores looted and people harmed uh, because you didn't have sufficient security. So it, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's very difficult for them to make the call to say, when do I apply this and how do I apply this uh, degree of law enforcement and when do I escalate it and, you know, uh, when do I draw it down? I mean, those are those are difficult leadership challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, your, uh, your friend and colleague, General Mattis, talked about you know, the president does not even pretend to try to unite the country and is instead engaged in a deliberate effort to divide the country while lacking mature leadership. What's your take? What's your take on that, sir?
1: No, I, well, I think he's he's right in what he's saying. It, uh, the president has to be compassionate and understand what's happened and understand the community that was most affected by this. Uh, he has to be firm in what he does uh, he has to work with the governors and mayors in a constructive and positive way. Uh, he should offer them help and support. He shouldn't try to override them. Uh, federal use of federal troops is a last resort. We've certainly used them in the past. I mean, uh, we've used them in the '60s, and Eisenhower used them in the in the '50s, and uh, you know, it, it goes way back. You know, George Washington used troops to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, and you know, so. You know, it was the Rodney King riots in the in in the early 90s in L.A. The Marines were there. The Marines went to Alcatraz to put down the rebellion. In the 20s, they had to put Marines on the trains to guard against the theft of the mails. And you know, we've used federal troops in the past, and there is a law that uh, uh, you know allows the president to do that. But the understanding is, you're not going to use federal troops only as a last resort, and only when governors and mayors feel uh, the situation is beyond what they can control. And I don't think we've seen it get to that point. I mean, that's why the states have the ability to call on the National Guard. That's why the president has the ability to federalize the National Guard. And that's why the president, as a last resort, can commit active duty forces. But that should only be at a last resort with the with the consent and understanding of the governors and mayors, that uh, they need that kind of capability, it's gotten beyond their control. And so, I think what you hear General Mattis saying, for him to leap in and threaten the use of federal troops—look, no soldier, sailor, airman, or marine wants to go into their own streets, of their own own towns and neighborhoods. Uh, they're not trained as policemen. Uh, you know, national guards tend to do some training in this sort of thing. But federal troops, that's not what they're designed to do. And that's not what their main purpose and mission is. It's a a last resort. And if used, uh, I mean, I I was very familiar with what happened with the L.A. when the Rodney King riots took place. The police uh, were in the lead. The federal forces that were there, in that case the Marines, responded to support and reinforce the police, not to take the place of police. And that was a last resort. And I think what you hear Mattis saying is, first of all, there was a lack of expression of compassion for those that were in the street legitimately and peacefully and what they feel and what had happened and the horror of it all. And I think there was this jump to gun and, you know, this uh, emphasis on law and order without understanding what had caused all this. So, And then the, I think going past the governor's and the mayor's, looking to commit federal troops to something that uh, uh, should not be done unless you were an extremist.
0: So does this go back to when we talked about the president and his understanding of the virus? Is this a sort of a similar situation, do you think, where the president is now, you talked about being compassionate, not necessarily understanding that race is an issue in America?
1: I, I, yes, I, I believe so. I, I don't. I don't think he understands the severity of the problem. Like I said, whether it's the virus or whether it's racism or whether it's climate change and or the environment. I, I mean, what's discouraging to me is you look at the major uh, crises and issues of our times. Our leaders are supposed to understand this and know this and understand it. Yeah, in 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 a way that uh is is drawn from how the experts define the problem. it's not you don't walk in uh to be a leader at the top understanding everything it's impossible, but you do have to bring in people that do understand it can define the problem for you you need to embrace the problem you need to accept it you can't deny the problem you can't diminish its importance. Uh, and and before you decide on how you're going to handle that problem, you, because this is such a complex uh, environment we live in, you know, our governance system or whatever it is, you need the advice and cooperation of others. I mean, there's 50 states, there's God knows how many cities and mayors out there, uh, and they have a job and a role and an understanding that is important for the process. It isn't all decided. You know, the White House doesn't decide what's going to happen in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I mean, that's why you have a mayor, and that's why you have a governor. And the president should look to initially be supportive of how they see things and not step all over them. I mean, it's, it's the, we have a social contract called the Constitution of the United States, and that contract was made among the states, now 50 of them. Uh, and part of that Constitution says we have a federal system, but the federal system will respect the state and local governments. And there are certain rights and abilities that go to them first or go to them in total. I don't think that uh, this administration understands that. They aren't, they aren't all powerful. We, we didn't set up a governmental system to be that way. We didn't want power all in the hands of one individual or one element of government. That's the whole nature and underpinning of what the Constitution's all about.
0: And that concludes the first season of America's Place in the World. Thank you for joining us. Find us on Facebook at General Zinni APW and online at apkcg.com forward slash APW. I'm Adam P. Kennedy, and this is America's Place in the World.